Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. is Haley. I am a member of the Tempest Collective in New York. Um, Tempest Collective is a revolutionary socialist organizing project, and they are also the organizer of today's event, Palestine 101, 75 Years of Colonialism, Imperialism, and Resistance. So before we start, I did want to take a moment uh, just to acknowledge that I'm sure a lot of us are today coming into this meeting and this space with a lot of grief and outrage and a real feeling of anger and helplessness about what we're watching, um, which is terribly overwhelming. Uh, Israel has killed more than 11,000 Palestinians, 4,500 of whom are children. And, you know, I just wanted to acknowledge that. I know that there are people who are personally affected by that on this call. And so, Today, what we want to do is really just arm each other with knowledge so we can turn that grief and outrage into lasting organizations and a real movement in this country that can fight until Palestine is free. And that matters here really more than anywhere else because the U.S. is uh, the largest funder of Israel. The Biden administration continues to send billions in funding to Israel um, and arms, and that's despite widespread opposition. So as of October 20th, Something like 66% of voters uh, in a poll said that they supported a ceasefire. 80% of them are Democrats, that is in Biden's own party. And last weekend, approximately 300,000 people, by some estimates, marched in Washington uh, and the largest protest in solidarity with Palestine in U.S. history. And that joins actions by people in London and Paris and Berlin and places all over the world, across the Middle East, uh, really standing against Israel's war, war crimes, even in the face of real repression and opposition from their governments. And so with that said, the goal of this meeting is to give people an introduction uh, because there are lots of people who are outraged and still looking for an understanding of the context and history and how we got to this point so that from that basis, we can then talk about what strategies it will take to stop this atrocity. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our wonderful speakers, who I'm going to give about 40 minutes to give some remarks. And then once they give their remarks, I'll explain how the discussion will work. But to start, we're going to have first Sherry Wolf. Sherry Wolf is an anti-Zionist Jewish organizer, a longtime socialist, and a member of the Tempest Collective living in Brooklyn. She's a member of Jewish Voice for Peace and helped organize the 2012 Russell Tribunal on Palestine. 
Next, we'll have Brian Bean. Brian is a socialist organizer and writer based in Chicago, a member of the Tempest Collective, a part of the Rampant Magazine Editorial Collective, and an editor and contributor to the book Palestine, a Socialist Introduction from Haymarket Books. And lastly, we'll have Shireen Akram-Boshar. Shireen is a socialist activist, writer, and editor based in Houston. She's a contributor to the book Palestine, a Socialist Introduction, by uh, published by Haymarket Books. And she's a member of the Tempest Collective and is on the editorial board of Spectre Journal. So big welcome to our speakers. Thank you so much. And Sherry, I'm going to have you start. Sure. Good afternoon, um, comrades, friends. I honestly wish we were having this conversation under less harrowing circumstances. Um, I've spoken around about the question of the myths of Zionism many, many times in the past and have entered that conversation in a different way than I'd like to today because I feel like what's going on should sort of steer some of this conversation and um, prepare people to arm themselves with the sort of ideas and understandings that are going to be most useful in this moment. And so I kind of wrote out like, what are three questions that come up or arguments or ideas and, and how when I respond to them? And the first of them that I wanted to talk about a bit is, does Israel have a right to defend itself? Because really the rallying cry of virtually every U.S. politician from Donald Trump to tragically Bernie Sanders is that Israel has a right to defend itself. And that's why there cannot be a ceasefire. And it screamed from the podiums of Congress and, of course, the Knesset in the face of what's obviously an unprecedented global upheaval for Palestine. Um, every mainstream U.S. media outlet repeats this line ad nauseum as if the mantra Israel has the right to defend itself were some sort of rhetorical slam dunk, um, irrefutable, right, to anybody except for the most dyed-in-the-wool anti-Semite. And I asked myself, what does it even mean to say Israel has the right to defend itself? I think what Zionists would like us to think it means is that Israel is the embodiment of Jewish national aspirations and that the survival of the Jewish people and our history is tied to the project of Zionism and the state of Israel. And um, seems to me, um, from my readings, academics would say this assertion is at best historically inaccurate. Um, I'm an organizer and activist, so I just call it bullshit. Zionism is not some 2,000-year-old yearning of the Jewish people. Israel is not the product of a national liberation movement. Israel is the product of European society in the age of imperialism at the end of the 19th century. Israel is a colonial settler state that is unapologetically racist in its legal system, and it denies basic human rights to its Arab population. And, of course, Currently, it's openly engaged in acts of what even genocide experts um, claim is genocide and clearly ethnic cleansing. And so that begs the question for me, what state has a right to genocide and ethnic cleansing? What state has a right to racial apartheid and dispossession? And my answer to that question is none, none at all. Nobody has a right. Zionism's founders, from my mind, at least had the honesty and the clarity about what they stood for in a way that there is not today on the lips of Zionists. Over and over and over again in their charters and in their statements and in their manifestos and correspondence, the word colonization appears, right? From the earliest days 
right? In the late 18, late 19th century, the 1920s, right? Jabotinsky's line is the most famous and oft repeated because he condenses this um, this concept, this this concept of of, uh, of the Jewish state um, so succinctly when he wrote that um, Zionism is a colonizing adventure and therefore it stands or falls by the question of armed force. It is important to build, it's important to speak Hebrew, but unfortunately it is even more important, he writes, to be able to shoot or else I am through with playing at colonization, right? They called their own departments, the colonization departments. There was no skittishness in this era of calling it what it was, such was the level, the depths of racism and the ready acceptance of white Europeans, including Ashkenazi Jews uh, of, of colonialism. So early Zionists right away sought their sort of patronage from imperialist powers. They didn't seek to break free from imperialism in the way that national liberation movements, as we understand them in the modern world, generally do, right? Rather than promising self-determination to the people of Palestine, right, almost all of whom were Arab, Zionists expelled them. And rather than representing a wider popular expression of the fight against Jewish oppression, early on Zionism represented little more than a very tiny upper crust section of the Jewish population um, who, uh, you know, basically uh, had, had no wider hearing until um, the Second World War, until the Holocaust. There, there were, as has often been repeated, more Jewish members of the Lower East, Lower East Side branch of the Socialist Party than there were in the World Zionist Organization in the early 20th century. This was a minoritarian movement that was not um, that was not um, uh, very popular. Zionists sort of speak of the sanctity and the inviolability of Israel, of its supposedly ancient biblical roots. But the planning for the modern state of Israel was literally declared at the corner of 43rd and Madison in the old Biltmore Hotel um, at a Zionist conference of 600 men, I'm going to assume, in 1942. Israel isn't the legacy of an ancient yearning. It's the concoction of a layer of Jewish separatists who received the backing of the world's most powerful empires, first the British and then the U.S., because there was a convergence of needs, right? The British and the U.S. needed an outpost in the Middle East where oil, which had risen to primary importance in the world in the early 20th century at the, you know, at, at the, during World War I, and the Zionists were fully prepared to become an aircraft carrier for the empire, populated by a royal white European Jews to act as a bulwark not against anti-Semitism, but against the region's Arab and Muslim populations, whom the West saw as a threat to its oil that somehow wound up under Arab feet. So that is how I approach this question of whether or not Israel has a right to defend itself. Another question, which has come up a lot, uh, most recently when uh, Rashida Tlaib, uh, Congresswoman Tlaib, was censored was uh, by, by her peers in Congress, and that is this notion that the rallying cry from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free or will be free, is tantamount to calling for driving the Jews into the sea. Now, this is a truly spurious cry, a claim. James Ogby, I noticed this morning, the founder and the president of the Arab American Institute, um, tweeted out something um, also, of course, known as a pollster, um, about regarding the river to the sea controversy. And he writes, seven years ago, we polled Israelis and Palestinians. He writes, a strong plurality in, in both, of both Israelis and Palestinians favored one state. And when asked how that would look 
Israelis said it meant expelling all Palestinians. Palestinians said it meant equal rights in one state. Interesting, right? <laughs> this is from the river to the sea. It's not about expulsion of Jews. It's about inclusive, inclusion of all. Um, Yusuf Munayer, who directs the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights, really explains it very briefly and succinctly in The Nation recently after Tlaib was disciplined. And he basically writes that today between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, there is effectively one state, the state of Israel. And it rules over millions of Palestinians who are denied justice and equality. When we call for freedom from the river to the sea, it is in this, it is this context we are responding to. We're calling for an end to Israeli domination, not for destruction of anyone, but the dismantling of unjust laws, systems, and practices. You know, but these words don't seem to mean anything um, when people want to interpret them otherwise. You know, Israel is a colonial settler state governed by an ethno-racial legal system. Its law of return allows a Jew born in Brooklyn, like me, to become a citizen, while Palestinians whose families have lived on the land for generations have their homes bulldozed and their lives destroyed. So the claim that Zionists make from the river to the sea being a call to genocide for Jews instead of a call for a democratic secular state where Jews and Arabs and for that matter Christians and everybody else um, can live together, to me reminds me, it's sort of reminiscent of what Naomi Klein uh, writes about most recently in a brilliant book called Doppelganger out from Haymarket Books, um, she calls the, the mirror world, right? This world that we're all inhabiting right now, not just through the war on Palestine, but in our lives here in the U.S., virtually um, throughout U.S. politics, and for that matter, throughout politics um, in the context of the, the global rise of fascism. And that is one in which the right, the far right, is adopting concepts and realities from the left in order to concoct a sort of victim narrative for themselves. So in this mirror world, college students fighting against the bombing of refugee camps are recast as Nazis. And the Biden administration, who compares people marching for ceasefire and a free Palestine, are compared to fascist thugs like those in Charlottesville. It's barbaric. The simple fact is that no organization or mass of people on the left is calling for Jewish genocide at these protests. It never has happened. I contend it never will. And anyone arguing otherwise is lying. Two minutes left, Sherry. The last thing I want to address is whether or not Israel is a global bulwark against anti-Semitism, because that ultimately is its reason for being. That is why it exists. It's raison d'être. My simple answer is no. Zionism's reason for existing from its founding through today rests on the contention that anti-Semitism is inevitable and therefore Jews have got to have a national home of our own in order for it never, uh, for a Holocaust to never happen again. Zionists accept the racialized understanding of Jews that perversely was fully developed under Nazism, right? Not a religion, it's a race in their minds. So Zionism's, and this comes from its very founding father where you have people like Theodore Herzl, who claims openly, I, I am watching the Dreyfus Affair, the trial of a Jewish officer in France uh, in the late 1890s. You know, I had a, a, a more, um, he says, uh, pardoning attitude toward anti-Semitism. I understood it and the, and the futility of trying to combat it, he talks about. It. And there's endless quotes to this um, effect by multiple, you know, leaders of the Zionist movement throughout history. Um, they complained about 
um, the contrasting views that were far more popular, which was the broader swath of, of world Jewry supported a very different version of, um, of dealing with anti-Semitism. And that was that he saw socialism as the answer. Socialists defended Jews who faced persecution. Socialists combated anti-Jewish racism as a poison to the workers' movement. And in that period, um, they even referred to anti-Semitism, of course, famously as the socialism of fools, right? People were diverting um, their uh, anxieties and fears and anger onto Jews um, that were really rightly placed onto people at the top of society. And on and on, I don't have time here. I want to try and keep as close to time as possible. But throughout World War II, the, co the collusion of Zionist leaders with the Nazis to ensure that only a certain layer of world Jewry would make their way to Palestine, which later became Israel, was quite telling about how they saw the massive working class Jews, in their own words, as scum, as dust, as irrelevant. They wanted the scientists, they wanted the doctors, they wanted the people who were learned, who were educated, and who were fit to come build their new society. They were uninterested in the vast majority of peasant Jews, the people um, from whom I and most Jews in the world descend. So I think that we have to say, you know, it's it, it it's not simply that anti-Zionism is not at all the same as anti-Semitism, but that Zionism actually has fueled anti-Semitism by fusing its project of ethnic cleansing to Judaism. Israel's need to express and oppress and eliminate Palestinians absolutely guarantees that hatred toward the perpetrators who insist their actions are in the name of Judaism is going to create and has created blowback against Jews, including those of us who abhor Zionism. And so the government and university administrators who are stifling dissent, who say calling for a ceasefire is anti-Semitic, implicitly portray Jews as bloodthirsty savages and racism as somehow a Jewish value. And in the name of my ancestors who fled pogroms, I reject this nonsense completely. The last thing I'll say is there's probably no more dangerous place in the world for Jews than in Israel. I will take my chances on the B-39 bus in Brooklyn any day over a bus in Tel Aviv, and that is because of the conditions created by the government of Israel. If Israel's reason for being is to create a national home where all Jews of the world can be safe, well, then it has failed. It has failed completely. Nowhere in the world are Jews in greater danger of being harmed, including by their own government if they dare to dissent, than in Israel. And even by its own claims to Jewish sanctuary, Israel is a dismal failure. I'll end there. All right. Thank you so much, Sherry. So next I have Brian. Go ahead, Brian. Can you hear me okay, Haley? Yes, I can hear you great. Cool. Um, so... In what is now a viral clip from an obscure 1986 congressional debate, Joe Biden proclaimed, It's about time we stop apologizing for our support for Israel. There is not an apology to be had. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Uh, were there not an Israel, the United States would have to invent an Israel to protect our interests in the region. He proudly repeated this again in 2022 when meeting with Israeli President Isaac Herzog. So Joe Biden loves Israel. Um, and he expressed his love on October 13th, um, when, with over 2,000 Palestinians dead, the State Department released an internal memo directing diplomats to not use the words or issue press pieces uh, using the term ceasefire, um, end to violence bloodshed, restoring calm, or de-escalation. Then 10 days later, with over 5,000 dead, thousands of them children, he said the time is not right for a ceasefire. 
And two days ago, with 10,000 dead, Biden was asked about a possible ceasefire, and his response was a simple none, no possibility. 518 out of the 535 sitting members of Congress oppose ceasefire. But it's not just that they oppose ceasefire. They actively aid and abet Israel's ongoing genocide of Palestinians with various bills moving through Congress, including $14.5 billion in supplemental funding for refilling Israel's weapons that passed in the House, various loyalty oaths in proclaiming support for Israel's aggression, um, Senate bills condemning, of all things, campus student for justice organizing, uh, the racist censuring of Rashida Tlaib for even saying from the river to the sea. And I think it's only mildly stating it to say that the U.S. state right now, largely incapable of doing anything to provide anything in form of services or support for people in this country's need, is basically functioning only as an arms trader and booster and facilitator of mass murder and genocide. Every one of them who oppose ceasefire, when every member of Biden's administration, in my opinion, right now is a war criminal. And that includes Bernie Sanders, who many once thought of as the savior of the socialist movement, um, as now he functions the champion of the bullshit language of humanitarian Pauls, which is a perverse neologism that Biden and Netanyahu cooked up to try to cover the fact that they have no regard for a single of the 2.3 million lives crammed in the concentration camp of Gaza. And while I'm glad that there are 17 Congress people who are calling for ceasefire, I think it's important that we don't forget that many of them, including Jamal Bowman and Ilhan Omar, voted in 2021 in favor of the $4.3 billion in direct military aid to Israel, the largest amount given at least 40 years, of course, which is a number that can be dwarfed if the $14 billion increase that Biden asked for passes through Congress. But a moment I want to kind of slow down my rant because uh, I think it's important that we ground our understanding of why what is happening, not just in the personal failings or beliefs of Genocide Joe. Um, and while I think that Congress is generally a racist institution, it's not just simple racism that motivates the support for Israel and the abetting of genocide and ethnic cleansing. Rather, the fact that support for Israel has been one of the most solemn bipartisan agreements since at least the 1960s. From Democrat John F. Kennedy to Republican Donald Trump, every U.S. president has avowed this special relationship between the U.S. and Israel. And so what motivates this is U.S. imperialism and the fact that Israel is a central pole in the U.S. ruling classes competition with ruling classes of other states. And so for the rest of my presentation, I want to kind of paint a picture of what imperialism looks like and how it's intermeshed with, with Israel and the United States. Um, and while I think it feels strange in the midst of this crisis to talk about history and theory, I think it's important um, and essential for understanding what is happening and also for understanding what is required to go back and break some of these things down. So as Sherry mentioned, um, Israel for most of its existence has been a military outpost for the United States. Uh, Netanyahu in 2017 himself described Israel as, quote unquote, the mighty aircraft carrier of our two great civilizations. Direct military funding to Israel makes up 59% of all the foreign military funding spent by the U.S. And Israel's defense budget, which spends a greater percentage of its GDP than most countries in the world, has 20% of its budget paid for by U.S. foreign direct military funding. And the U.S. and Israel have a memorandum of understanding that guarantees this amount um, for over a decade. And so the military angle, I think, is the clearest expression of U.S. support and the, the, the two carrier groups parked in the eastern Mediterranean is a symbol of that. Imperialism is not exerted only through the threat of war power, but also by economic and political power. The U.S.'s use of its veto in the U.N. Security Council, used over 30 times in support of Israel and shielding them from the International Criminal Court, are examples of this in the uh, court of pointless pageantry of the United Nations. 
But U.S. also uses this expression of dominance, not just in backing the rabid watchdog of its interests as Israel, but by also putting the U.S. forward as holding the leash and being the sole negotiator with Israel and working to uh, integrate the Zionist state politically and economically into the global order. And that process, that ensuring the stability and dominance of Israel in the region, has meant the sacrifice of Palestinians to the gods of imperialism. And this historic feature, it's gone on for a long time, has deepened even in the past few years. At the end of the Cold War, the U.S. began a process of the implementation of a strategy to draw the entire region into one single economic zone that was characterized by free trade and investment flows all under the thumb of U.S. economic power. Now, the question of Palestine was a fly in the ointment of this project, as hostility towards Israel, being the vanguard of foreign colonialism and dominance, made the cause of Palestine one that was tremendously popular among the Arab masses. So implementing some kind of quote-unquote peace process was necessary to give cover for the despots of the Arab states to be able to come to the table to, to maintain this negotiation. So this quote-unquote peace process was purely a white rag of surrender that was forced in the mouths of Palestinians. Um, and don't they, don't just take my word for it. One year after Oslo, um, there was a Middle East and North African joint economic summit where Bill Clinton, Secretary of State, proclaimed that now, quote, the Middle East is open for business. And so this has been the bipartisan strategy of successive presidents since Clinton brokered Oslo. Um, and it was furthered under Trump, who rapidly accelerated this process with the official normalization efforts of what came out of the Bahrain conference, the so-called deal of the century, and the Abraham Accords. And then Biden has picked up right where Trump left off. In order to compete with China's trillion-dollar Belt and Road Initiative that they use to connect up Chinese economic and political spheres of influence, Biden is launching projects like his announcements in September's G20 meeting of the IMEC, a new trade corridor connecting India with the EO, EU via the Middle East. This includes the construction of transport infrastructure that culminates, of course, in Israel. So securing stable control of the Middle East is key for this exertion of U.S. capitalist power. And this need of U.S. imperialism has fueled this normalization of diplomatic and economic relations between Israel and the states of the region. Israel is integrated through various trade deals, security cooperation, transport, etc., to, uh, to quote Tony Blair, to truly tap the economic potential of these markets. This process of normalization with settler colonial Israel strengthens the investment of the U.S. and regional powers in maintaining the Israeli state. And normalization looks like everything from the symbolic, the Israeli flag being hoisted at regional sporting events, to the $28 billion of trade done between the Gulf Cooperation Council and Israel, to the existence of qualified industrial zones, which pays off duty-free access to American markets for a percentage of inputs being from Israel. This normalization has advanced in the past couple of years, literally uh, countries being paid off with trade and arms deals that includes the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, of all normalized relations, and more will follow. Saudi Arabia's normalization process with Israel um, has begun, and that's the golden goose for American imperialism, even though the current events in Palestine have temporarily put it on pause. So again, what drives this is the competition between capitalist class of the U.S. and that of China and other potential rivals, and the economic rivalry between these two countries profoundly shaped the global geopolitical framework. And all this is because the U.S. region is of prime global importance, and Sherry talked about uh, this, some of this before. Oil, of course, is the, the favorite fuel of capitalism, and the U.S. wants um, access there, not just because the oil itself, the U.S. is a fossil fuel exporter, but it wants to control the natural resource that is essential to China's economic um, uh, engine. 
The Middle East is geographically positioned at the axis of global shipping um, and ships, again, for oil and other products all around the world. Um, and Israel is, is integrated politically and economically into all these circuits of regional trade and capital flow. And this deepens the connection that already established by its military role and directly invests regional states and capital in the maintenance and support of the stability of Israel. And this means the continued erasure of Palestinians and the furtherance of the settler colonial project that has been expressed in this dramatic escalation in settler violence and ethnic cleansing in the West Bank maintained its stronghold over Gaza and why no one has come to defend the Palestinian people in the genocide that is currently happening. Um, and that includes uh, the Palestinian Authority. The other uh, role of the Oslo Accords is to establish the Palestinian Authority to manage the occupation in the West Bank, to integrate the burgeoning Palestinian capitalist class and the PA bureaucracy into a regional economic relationship with their occupiers and oppressors in the Israeli state. So the PA largely functions as an NGO siphon for aid money from the major Western capitalist countries and a police force largely funded by the U.S. collaborating with Israel to repress Palestinian resistance and anger. You got two so this, minutes, Brian. Great. So this picture hopefully paints, I think, um, some of the background of the current situation. U.S. imperialism has thus far been very successful in building up Israel and backing it with the full force of the world's most powerful military to defanging the Palestinian resistance movement by establishing a client in the PA, and three, further isolating Palestinians by integrating settler colonial Israel um, with its Arab neighbors. So, but October 7th was a massive blow to Israel's mythological invulnerability. Um, the Iron Dome was punctured, the wall briefly fell. And this is a massive threat to this core pillar of U.S. interest in the region. And that's why Biden has leaped to its defense sent these two aircraft carriers to the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, it explains why the response by all the Arab regimes surrounding Israel have given at best lip service to the Palestinian calls in attempts to deflect, again, this mass sentiment and solidarity with Palestine that you've seen by the massive demonstrations of the Arab working class. While Bahrain has withdrawn their ambassadors and Saudi Arabia has paused in the normalization process, these responses have been useless to Palestinians. A whole month after the escalation of October 7th, the Saudis convened an emergency conference of the Arab League this past Saturday that was attended by the Iranian president. They passed some verbose rhetoric, but nothing will come of it. And the conference, again, is not what the Palestinians need right now. Egypt, Gaza's other jailer, criminally allows the border to Gaza to be mostly closed, and the trickle of aid allows is just a drop in the bucket of what is needed. Al-Sisi carried out a wave of arrests of those who demonstrated in solidarity with Palestine weeks ago, and Jordanian police physically beat protesters attempting to get to the border. What drives all this is the regional economic and political connections that are facilitated by U.S. imperial um, ambitions. And so while the end game in Gaza is unclear, the U.S., as Secretary of State Blinken's recent comments show, have a clear desire to facilitate some sort of transfer of what is left of Gaza to its loyal Palestinian authority and foster Gaza maybe as some kind of West Bank's Area B, where Israel maintains security presence. Israel, on the other hand, is um, entertaining, moving all the Gazan Palestinians to Egyptian Sinai. And while I say this not to speculate over what the plan is, but to underline that what is happening to Palestinians and what is being planned to happen to Palestinians is not being determined by Palestinians, but jointly by the U.S. and Israel. So I think to close, I think that the importance of understanding the forces that drive this current bloodshed and the conditions that led to it is it is motivated by the forces of global imperialism and capitalism. 
in the U.S.'s staunch support of Israel on the level of the state is because it is in the interests of the U.S. capitalist class to do so, to secure U.S. political and economic sphere of influence in this strategically important region. Increasing competition with Chinese imperialism will only sharpen that. And that means that if we're going to build a movement in the U.S. to support Palestine, we need to be clear that challenging U.S. support for Israel means challenging a key plank of U.S. capitalist interest. And thus building a movement for Palestine needs to challenge capitalism if we want it to win. That means challenging both the Republicans and the Democrats, the two parties of capital. And I think that if the lesser evil of Biden means genocide, then maybe it's a political calculus that we should abandon. Um, and so I think that now is how we can build the movement. But doing that, knowing that we need to build a vast movement and build BDS, but also cohere a left wing that is clear on the challenges ahead. Um, and we see the friends and allies of the Palestinian people, not with the capitalist states and their shadow play of international institutions and conferences, but with the people of the world who have filled the streets with millions since Israel's carnage began. The hope lies in those folks, those who chant long live the Intifada. I think the hope is there in Intifada and resistance. I'll stop there. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Brian. So lastly, we have Shireen and then we'll open for discussion. Go ahead, Shireen. That's a good note to start on. Uh, or transition with the intifada. <laughs> um, I just want to start by saying that what we're witnessing today is a uh, second Nakba. Uh, it's the unprecedented destruction of Gaza and an outright genocide of its population and forced, forced ethnic cleansing at a scale, you know, I think not seen since 1948, perhaps 1967 too. Um, but since 1948 and before, Palestinians have waged various forms of resistance, all of which have been viciously attacked by Israel and all forms of which have also been condemned and vilified by Israel and the U.S. Uh, nonetheless, a historical account of various forms of Palestinian resistance is necessary, I think, to assess strategies that have worked uh, and those that haven't and to understand uh, the current moment and how we got here. Um Palestinian resistance predates the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. Uh, it dates back to when the British mandate controlled Palestine after World War I. So the 1920s and 30s witnessed protests and strikes against the British uh, and its policies, including Britain's efforts to resettle Jews in Palestine uh, as uh, following its Balfour Declaration, and then land grabs that process entailed. Um, these protests and strikes uh, culminated in a six-month-long general strike in 1936. This strike was inspired actually by the Syrian general strike of earlier that year, which had won a promise from France to give Syria its independence, uh, thus giving inspiration to its neighboring anti-colonial struggle. The six-month strike in Palestine was one of, if not the longest strike in anti-colonial movement history, and marked the start of the 1936 to 1939 Great Arab Revolt in Palestine. This three-year movement has been described by some as the closest Palestine has come to liberation. It had a strong class character and class divide also. So initially, court workers and urban Palestinians were involved in the strike, and it later became a largely rural peasant revolt. Peasants canceled debts and rents on apartments, for example, and called for everyone to wear the clothes of rural peasants, which included the kafiya instead of the fez, so that the colonial authorities couldn't tell who was a peasant fighter and who wasn't. This three-year revolt was repressed by both the British and the new Zionist militias that the British encouraged to attack Palestinians. Uh, but in the end, the Palestinian and Arab elites uh, also called it uh, to an end, uh, an, which is an act that would become a pattern in terms of Palestinian elites betraying the liberation struggle. 
Uh, in fact, these were the very elites that uh, included large absentee landowners who had sold land to Zionists, uh, displacing Palestinian workers and farmers. So this was uh, one of uh, the first of, of such class-based uh, betrayals. In 1948 and 1967, Palestinians experienced massive forced transfer and ethnic cleansing, land grabs by Israel, massacres, displacement, and new uh, occupations as Israel established itself and moved forward with its colonial project. These transformed and, of course, drastically weakened the possibilities for Palestinian resistance. In 1968, Palestinians attempted to organize guerrilla warfare from neighboring countries where they had been forcibly displaced and lived in refugee camps. This was a tactic perhaps of desperation, of defeat after 1967, of loss of faith in, in the Arab uh, nationalist, uh, the surrounding states, and also inspired by anti-colonial revolts globally. Fatah, the Palestinian National Liberation Movement, had just been founded in the diaspora, and a few years later, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, was also founded, which has since its inception been dominated by Fatah. While Fatah originally had guerrilla struggle tactics and was inspired by third world revolutions, its character and how it developed was also related to the fact that it was created in exile and by Palestinians who had accumulated wealth in the Gulf in places like Saudi Arabia. They became a nationalist uh, bourgeoisie that would end up making numerous concessions to Israel and even making decisions from afar that would go against the wishes of the Palestinian people. But from the late 1960s to the early 1980s, Fatah and the PLO organized and attempted to wage guerrilla struggle outside of Palestine in Jordan, Lebanon, and Tunisia, each time facing brutal repression and, and massacres from Israel and also repression from the Arab regimes, uh, like in Sabran Shatila in 1982, for example. 20 years after Israel's 1967 occupation of the West Bank in Gaza, uh, the first intifada or uprising began in, in Jabalia refugee camp. In, in Gaza, which has actually been under attack. It's in the north of Gaza, um, under brutal attack over the past few weeks. Um, and the first intifada lasted from 1987 into the early 90s. Um, it began with mass daily protests in the tens of thousands in the refugee camps of Gaza and then in the refugee camps in the West Bank. Uh, Salim Tamari has characterized this phase as an uprising of the urban poor against their class and national oppression. And it's also been called the phase of the war of the camps. And it was made up of mostly migrant day laborers who worked inside Israel and the unemployed. Israel responded to this nonviolent, uh, these nonviolent protests by killing tens of protesters and imposing harsh curfews on the refugee camps. Uh, the first intifada is known for its grassroots, largely nonviolent character and mass participation. And uh, soon after what I described above, the emergence of committees like educational committees, defense committees, medical, uh, and then central committees, and then an underground leadership uh, all, all emerged. Um, and Israel responded with the, uh, it's known for responding with the breaking bones policy of literally beating and breaking bones of Palestinian protesters, as well as with curfews, deportations, forced closure of most Palestinian schools during this time, and assassinations and killings as well. Um, but similar to in 1936 and 1939, the uprising that started with a mass popular character and caught the Palestinian leadership by surprise was eventually eclipsed by the traditional Palestinian party leadership, which were increasingly dominated by the pressures and pull of Fatah and the PLO in exile. So after a period of tension where the grassroots had all but established this, uh, basically a situation of dual power on the ground, the external Palestinian leadership maneuvered to take control of the uprising 
And that, and they brought about negotiations with Israel that led to the 1993 Oslo Accords, which uh, set up the Palestinian Authority, allowed for the growth of Israeli settlements, increasingly fractured the West Bank into enclaves or or Bantustans, towns, basically. Uh, Also brought free market capitalism into Palestine and increasing the wealth disparity in Palestinian society uh, and so on. These concessions were being made by Fatah and the PLO, the secular bourgeois leadership in exile, who then came back to Palestine uh, in this process to fulfill their state building process which, of course, was a farce and has been recognized as a farce by the majority of the Palestinian population. In 1988, during the First Intifada, Hamas was uh, created in the Gaza Strip. It was founded as a critique of secular Fatah and the PLO, and also as a need to turn like an Islamic uh, movement in the direction of resistance, uh, active resistance against Israel. So at the time, even during the uh, the start of the first intifada, Fatah and the PLO were already moving away from this their previous strategy of guerrilla struggle, guerrilla warfare towards diplomatic relationships and negotiations. In September of 2000, the second intifada broke out, uh, which can be understood as a rejection of Oslo and a recognition of the failure of or the farce of the state building project. The second intifada also began with mass popular protests, but Israel immediately massively repressed and had a shoot to kill policy at a level not seen in the prior uprising, uh, which all helped put to push it in a more violent, into a more violent armed conflict. The second intifada lasted until 2005. And during this period, Israel began to build its apartheid wall, which snakes through the West Bank and grabs more land for Israel while shrinking Palestinian freedom of movement. Israel increasingly cut off and isolated Gaza during this time and cut off, uh, for example, East Jerusalem from the West Bank, um, which it had originally been quite connected. In early 2002, Israel invaded Jenin refugee camp in the West Bank, claiming it was necessary to root out resistance fighters, and Israel flattened over a third of the camp and killed uh, dozens. Uh, Israel blocked humanitarian assistance from getting to the camp and denied the wounded uh, medical assistance. And I think this raid and repression foreshadowed the repression of the refugee camp that we're seeing this year. And also, according to scholars like Nasir Aruri, it reflected the fact that the new, at the time, new U.S.-led war on terror was already giving Israel more of a green light to ramp up its violent repression. In 2005, hundreds of Palestinian civil organizations uh, put forward the call for a global boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israel to put pressure uh, to pressure Israel to end the occupation, to allow for the right of return um, to the, the towns that Palestinians were displaced from, uh, and to end apartheid policies against Palestinians inside Israel proper. This obviously clearly nonviolent form of resistance has also been demonized and smeared, and in the U.S. alone, there are numerous laws attempting to ban BDS. In many states, you have to sign an anti-BDS clause to start a job, for example. Sure, you got five minutes left. Thanks. Okay. In 2006, uh, Hamas was elected in democratic and and moderated uh, elections as the leadership uh, of both the West Bank and Gaza. This was due to increasing exasperation. I mean, this this has been a theme (laughs) with Fatah, uh, which... Uh, over their concessions with and and willingness to work with Israel um, and a lack of secular alternatives that had not conceded to the, by then, uh, each of the secular conservatives 
sorry, each of the secular alternatives uh, or the traditional Palestinian, uh, including the Palestinian left, had conceded to the two-state solution model, which meant giving up uh, 78% of historic Palestine. So even, you know, the popular front for the liberation of Palestine and the democratic front for the liberation of Palestine, the left-wing groups had accepted these uh, kinds of concessions. Hamas had also been successful in its use of charity, which is, you know, typical of a bourgeois Muslim Brotherhood type of uh, Muslim Brotherhood organization. Um, But that kind of charity work uh, also distinguished it from the more obviously neoliberal capitalist uh, Fatah. But Israel responded to these elections by, uh, or in 2006, Israel encircled and besieged Gaza and invaded and attacked sites within it. Hamas became the leadership of just Gaza, while Fatah and the Palestinian Authority remained uh, the leadership in the West Bank. Israel's siege and blockade of Gaza has lasted basically from then until today, making Gaza increasingly unlivable. It's seen... We've seen since then five wars on Gaza, each of which have have been increasingly genocidal and and murderous. While groups in Gaza like Hamas and Islamic Jihad have continued to be active in Gaza, uh, propelled in large part by, I would say, the horrific conditions of the siege and blockade, Gaza has also seen popular nonviolent movements, of course, in the first intifada, as I mentioned, and most recently in the Great March of Return, Gaza's Great March of Return, which took place in Gaza from March 2018 through December 2019. Uh, It was largely youth-based and unaffiliated with any political faction, uh, and Palestinians organized weekly Friday mass protests and peaceful marches to the the border, basically, with uh, that cut off Gaza. And they called for dignity, the right to return. Um, 70% of of Gaza, Gazans are refugees from elsewhere inside historic Palestine, Um, and for freedom of movement in the face of the crushing blockade. Israel responded by shooting to maim, uh, aiming to render Palestinians disabled and unable to walk, basically. Um, further, the well, additionally, the, the Western media almost completely ignored this popular movement, um, which turned the moment into something hopeful and into a, a more obviously desperate situation for Gazans. Uh, the U.S. the sorry, the U.N. had already predicted that Gaza would be unlivable by unlivable by 2020. So the options for Palestinian resistance uh, were becoming more and more narrow. Um, just a couple more points. In 2021, some hope uh, reemerged with protests that came out of the struggle to, to protect the East Jerusalem uh, neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. These uh, generalized and were taken up by Palestinians inside Israel proper and, and also in the West Bank and Gaza. And it became known as the Unity Intifada, um, which was unprecedented in its unified action across the Israeli fragmentation and had not been seen at that level uh, in decades because of the the conditions. Um, And they used anti-colonial frameworks and progressive and and largely secular language and nonviolent means, et cetera. But it also saw, on the other hand, increasing settler violence, Israeli settler violence, and increasing right-wing and fascist Israeli government. Um, the Unity Intifada, like the Gaza's Great Return March, was largely independent of the political parties and even included a revolt within it against the Palestinian Authority um, and included a nascent young Palestinian leadership. Uh, however, they're not uh, they were not yet organized enough. Um, another era of resistance is worth recalling before I end. Uh, in 2011, the Arab Spring revolutions broke out in Egypt, Syria, Tunisia, Bahrain and beyond. These protests held Palestinian liberation as a central tenet. The the region's masses, 
just about everyone except the elites <laughs> have been in solidarity with Palestine and seen the oppression of Palestinians as a reflection of their own oppression. Uh, on May 15, 2011, thousands of protesters from Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan marched to the border and some entered into Palestine. And, and this was uh, a glimmer of hope for Palestinians and, and for, for Palestinian liberation and broader liberation. Um, solidarity with Palestine has always been a demand of the region's peoples uh, to their reactionary regimes. And each Palestinian intifada has also inspired protests and even protest movements in the surrounding countries. Um, other settler colonial and anti-apartheid struggles like in South Africa have relied on workers struggle, uh, workers strike movements to, to defeat their apartheid system. But Israel has learned from the case of South Africa and largely marginalized Palestinians from its labor, labor force. This means that an outside force is all the more important uh, to change the balance of forces. In this case, uh, we would say the working classes across the region who have to pressure their regimes to end normalization with Israel and demand a change in the, that balance of, force, of uh, power and forces. Unfortunately, the 2011 revolutions have faced a decade of defeat by regional and international actors, given, giving even less hope to Palestinians and Gazans in particular, and making their options for struggle all the more narrow. So when mainstream media, uh, or mainstream voices say, why have Palestinians not tried nonviolence? Or where is the Palestinian Gandhi? We should remember Gaza's Great Return March, the First Intifada, the BDS movement, the 1936 uh, general strike. Uh, I'll leave it there. And, uh, excited for discussion. Thank you so much, Shireen, Brian, Sherry, for those really great uh, opening remarks. Um, really informative, and I hope will generate some good discussion. So uh, before we open up, um, I'm just going to uh, put out a couple of guide points. Um, also, I uh, this part of the uh, meeting was live streamed, but uh, moving forward, uh, we're only going to be meeting on Zoom for the discussion, so that won't be recorded or live streamed. So if you're joining us from the live stream and want to participate in the discussion, please join us. Uh, That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcasts wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com. <laughs>